Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. If you're uh, listening to us uh, live during our 9 o'clock hour, um, you uh, should know that we are literally just hours away from what promises to be one of the most fascinating and perhaps important hearings that uh, will be in the Fulton County courtroom uh, this year. It's uh, today that Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney will hear arguments on whether or not to release all or parts of the special grand jury's report on the investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 Georgia presidential election. And we're going to get started with that subject today after I introduce the panel. Uh, It's Tuesday. I feel really fortunate that this happens on a Tuesday because my uh, regular partner from the AJC on Tuesdays is Tamara Hallerman, who has been on top of this story from the start this is an exciting day for you, Tamara. You're just, as I said a little while ago, a couple hours, you'll head down to the Fulton County Court her, Courthouse uh, to start watching this unfold. So thanks for being here this morning. Thanks so much. I'm excited to dive in, and I can't wait to see what comes out of this hearing at noon today. Yep, yep. Uh, Karen Owen is back with us, professor of political science at uh, the University of West Georgia. But now, Karen, it's been too long since you've done the show, but part of that is because you're now a dean, not just of one college, but a couple of colleges at the University of West Georgia. And so you've had a very busy schedule. Are you still being, are you still able to teach a political science class while you're doing all your administrative work? So I have not taught since last summer. Um, taking on the administrative role has kind of prevented me from being in the classroom, but I'm hoping that next fall I will be back in the classroom because I do miss seeing the students. But it is a, a real great opportunity at me, for me right now at the university to help. Well, we we congratulate you on the fact that um, you're doing so well out there at the University of West Georgia. Kurt Young is back with us. He's a professor of political science and the chairman of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University. How have you been, Kurt? Been extremely busy. As everyone knows, this time of year is just uh, insane. And uh, I, I want to join in the congratulations to my colleague, uh, Dr. Owen. Um, it's a serious, serious opportunity there. Uh, but yes, uh, Bill, it's really busy this time of year, but I'm not complaining. Um, it is what it is, it is what it is, as they say. We haven't seen you since the start of the semester. What are you teaching uh, this semester? Great class this year, uh, graduate course uh, titled uh, African Political Ideas. We'll be focused on the works of Walter Rodney. Uh, and I have my senior thesis uh, course, where we, uh, which is a capstone course for our graduating seniors. Um, uh, well, it's wonderful to have you with us. And it's also great, Fred Smith, to have you back. Uh, professor of Constitutional Law at Emory University. Uh, Fred, thanks so much for being here. Tell us about what are you teaching this semester? 
I'm teaching federal courts and I'm teaching state constitutional law uh, with uh, really? former Justice David Namias for co-teaching a uh, class on state constitutional law. We're having a blast. Um, you and Nami, I didn't realize. So is Namias considered what a visiting professor? Tell everybody who exactly. Namias is. He has great credentials. Yeah, no, absolutely. Harvard Law grad, uh, he clerked for uh, for Justice Scalia, and he served as the Chief Justice of Georgia's uh, Supreme Court until uh, just a few months ago. Uh, so it's an well, honor and pleasure to be teaching with him. So two former Supreme Court clerks, because of course you clerked for uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Wow, lucky students in that class. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Tamar, uh, the special grand jury, 23 members, spent virtually all of last year, I think about eight, nine months, hearing from witnesses about the tr attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. They issued their report, or they contributed to the writing of their report, which was finalized before the end of last year. But now the big question before Judge McBurney is whether all or any of that report should be made public. So start us off by explaining where we stand on that, please. Sure. I mean, we're working under the assumption that the public will see parts or most of the report at some point. There's a question, though, of whether we'll see that soon. It's possible we could get it in the coming days. It's possible we don't see it for weeks or months or even more than a year if the judge decides to keep it private and give the DA time to decide if she wants to issue any indictments. Of course, this special grand jury can't indict. It can only recommend, and it's ultimately up to the DA what she wants to do. She does not have to agree with what the special grand jury wants to do. That said, we, of course, are dying to know what's in that report, and it's one of the most sought after and anticipated legal documents in a long time. Uh, we don't know what's in that report. We're assuming it's going to be some combination of like kind of a summary of their findings, what they've looked into over the last eight months, along with potentially some recommendations about whether they think anyone should be indicted. But special grand juries are super rare. There's not a ton of case law that kind of governs what needs to be in a report. In theory, it could be super short. They could even say, hey, we looked at this for eight months, nothing to see here, move along. I doubt that. <laughs> I, I would think that given how compelling the national interest is in this and because people paid such close attention to the January 6th committee, it'll be a much more longer, thorough document. Uh, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see if the DA offers any sort of hints at this hearing today. At some point, we could also hear from the grand jurors themselves. They're they're allowed to, to speak at some point. Um, so obviously, we'll be dying to know about that as well. And Tamar, we should remind our listeners of the long parade of people who have been called, who were called to testify during that eight months or so. Um, some very big names like Rudolph Giuliani, for instance, uh, Governor Kemp at one point uh, testified, um, fake electors like the chair of the state Republican Party, David Schaefer, and, and, and many others, yes? Yeah, I mean, we've had pretty much all of our statewide uh, officials, Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor or former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Chris Carr, Brad Raffensperger, and many of his top aides. Uh, we've Lindsey Graham fought his subpoena, perhaps more than anyone else, all the way up to the Supreme Court. We've had folks from Donald Trump's inner circle from his campaign. <laughs> his uh, former chief of staff at the White House, Mark Meadows, was directed to testify. So a lot of heavy hitters. And while some of those people did testify publicly, 
publicly before the January 6th committee. There are others who did not. Um, and so folks like Lindsey Graham and Mark Meadows. And so mm -hmm. we're very eager to see what they might have said. Now, we don't know if this special grand jury report will include include transcripts or even quotes from their interviews. Um, and that'll be something else I'm curious to see if there will be any sort of hints about that. Obviously, uh, the public would be dying to know what was said in that private uh, testimony. Yeah. So, Fred, um, there's there's an interesting wrinkle. Uh, there, there are several interesting wrinkles in this. But one of them is Fani Willis is expected to be there today to give her recommendation uh, to uh, Judge McBurney on whether they should release any of this information. And help me with this. It strikes me that if she has gotten to the point where she knows she may want to prosecute any number of the people who are targets of the investigation, um, is it necessarily in her interest to want this report to remain private for the time being as she pursues criminal charges. I'm not quite sure what a district attorney's thoughts might be on that. Fred? Sure, right. So this is going to be one of those instances where uh, lots of different parties are going to have uh, different interests and are going to make um, a different case. And Judge McBurney is going to have to weigh all of it, right? And so it may be that the district attorney today uh, wants to keep all or some of it uh, private for a little longer until um, she, especially if she is um, planning to charge someone. Um, it also, uh, we, well, we know where the where the news media generally is on this, um, which they, they think it's in the public interest for it to be um, out uh, sooner rather than later, that it's a very important uh, document uh, that should be in, uh, in the public sphere. Um, you know, there's been press reports that members of the grand jury special, uh, of the special grand jury themselves uh, anticipated that it would be a public document. Uh, and so, so you, kind of, you have this kind of interesting um, mix of, uh, of interests. Um, one of the things Judge McBurney is also gonna be weighing those, a 1961 case um, that cautioned against impugning the public, impugning the character uh, of public officials in reports that aren't official indictments. Um, and in, uh, in, in the early 1960s, there's a case where uh, the Court of Appeals found that there were some unnecessary statements in the words of the court um, and uh, that, that went too far in impugning the character. But the, so those are the sorts of kind of somewhat broad legal standards um, that uh, the Judge McBurney is going to be looking to and attempting to sort out uh, in deciding how much or if to make this report public at all at this point. Um, Karen and then Kurt, for just I, I want to go back to what you just talked about, Fred. But before we do, Karen and Kurt, I'd love your general thoughts on how you're feeling about uh, today, Karen. I mean, from my standpoint, I think as a person in the public, I'm very curious as to what this report says and wanting to see what um, has been in the investigation for those past eight months. However, I do think that if indictments are coming, it does make sense legally, right, for the DA to hold the report and not to want to see it go public until she's ready for everything to have the case go. So I think as much as I'd like to see it, like the announcement come this afternoon that the report and all of its glory will be shared, it may be best for us to hold a little bit longer so that we can see all the actions that need to play out. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and Bill, when you think about the high, and I think uh, Tamar mentioned this earlier, 
the high visibility and high expectations around this case. You know, there's an argument, a narrative that suggests that this is where former President Trump is most vulnerable in the state of Georgia in this particular case. And so this is that's one of the reasons why there is such a high uh, uh, volume of discussion and high expectations around what's going to come out of the court today. Um, I, 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 I can't imagine, especially given the extent to which this case, this particular uh, special grand jury investigation uh, connects with the January 6th investigation and then also connects with any of the work that's being done by current special prosecutor uh, Jack Smith. Uh, it seems to me that when all parties are connected, uh, of course, the January 6th committee, committee has uh, work has been completed and that report has been made public. Um, but the extent to which this particular investigation connects with other ongoing investigations, not just in and of itself, uh, I imagine that we're going to if we see anything, it may be very limited uh, uh, revelations and, and disclosures. Uh, and not a full-throated uh, uh, um, presentation of all of the all of the uh, contents of the grand uh, of the um, special grand jury's work. Tamar, if you could, uh, I think the the issue that Fred raised is of some interest here because uh, uh, there may be David Schaefer's lawyer may be in court arguing why this report maybe shouldn't be made uh, public. For, as an example, hypothetical, uh, we know. President Trump's lawyers, former President Trump's lawyer, Drew Findlay, they're not going to be in court, and they're saying they're not going to be there because Trump was never called to testify. Uh, first of all, th that's correct, right? Yes. Uh, we are expecting the lawyers of some targets to potentially step up. But as I have been reaching out to folks these last couple of weeks, uh, folks are wary of sharing their plans publicly. But Fred's, uh, what he mentioned, this 1961 Georgia appeals court decision is crucial. Uh, and, and he's right, you can't impugn the character of somebody short of an indictment. But there's an important line in that decision that, that leaves a gray area for McBurney to operate in. And it says they, they can't impugn the character, uh, the character of somebody unless they have specific statutory authority. And there are some legal experts I've spoke to who think that because the grand this grand jury was tasked with examining whether anyone need to be needed to be charged with a crime they think that that might lead to fewer redactions. At the same time, there is some legal precedent in Georgia with past special grand juries where targets were able to actually read over the report before it was released publicly and suggest redactions. Um, and so there's a lot of gray area here. Um, it is possible that McBurney decides that parts of the report can be released relatively soon. So we could see, for example, the findings that kind of summarize a lot of what we already know about what happened in the post-election period, but perhaps he holds back the recommendations or really scrubs it. Um, I think that's kind of the most sensitive area of this report, and that's what I think the DA would, would potentially want to keep private in order to give her time to get her ducks in a row before any potential indictments. Um, so, Fred, if, if, you, uh, if this area of law on impugning the uh, reputation of someone who is not the subject of criminal indictment uh, is not allowed. It seems to me that's a perfect area, depending on what. First of all, McBurney has asked that the parties who are arguing in court today address that very issue, right? Start with that. 
That's right. So that's going to be uh, this. This case has probably never been cited so often. It's called Kelly versus Tanksley. It's a state court of appeal case that's it's at the heart of the matter here. Um, and uh, some of the key language is um, that in that 1961 uh, case, the court said the instant report contained statements unnecessary to the purpose sought to be accomplished by the report. Right, uh, and then there's other language in the opinion um, that uh, Tamar cited around uh, having a specific legal duty, right? And so, um, you know, this is he's kind of really be going through this with almost, uh, you know, with, with a scalpel, not a, not an axe, um, uh, to figure out whether or not there are parts of this report um, that cross that line. Uh, and you know, and given that none of us on this call uh, and few people who are listening know what's in it, uh, you know, it's hard to know how much uh, should or could be redacted based on this. Okay, so, so Fred, um, let me just pose a hypothetical to you first. Um, let's say McBurney rules that portions of this report should be made public. If you're an attorney who doesn't want, involved in the case, who doesn't want this to be made public, on the basis of that language about impugning characters, would you immediately file an appeal to uh, su to suppress any public release until that can be adjudicated by a higher court. In other words, are we going to see the potential for ongoing uh, court activity around something like that? You know, presumably so. Um, often where you see appeals the most are in kind of you can't unring the bell kind of situations where um, where once something has happened in a trial court um, and uh, that the damage is done, right? And such that an appeal at some later point wouldn't be very helpful. And this seems like it's arguably in that category that once the report is released, you can't unrelease it. Well, couldn't you ask for a stay before uh, so you can argue uh, in also, an that's appeal? Also, that's, also, that's also the case, right? So yeah. typically when one appeals, one seeks a stay, often one will first seek a stay in the trial court itself. Uh, and sometimes a trial court will grant the stay, um, and other times someone will see, will seek the stay um, in the uh, in the appellate court. So here, okay. So Kurt and then Karen. Here's one of the reasons that I'm interested, and in, as we all are, in the kind of minutiae of what's going to be argued today among whatever bigger themes emerge. You know, Fonnie Willis uh, has proven herself to be an aggressive and bold prosecutor. Um, she takes on big, big cases with a lot of confidence, as, as is obviously evident in her, you know, attempts to uh, protect, potentially go after the uh, election deniers. But it strikes me that in some ways, the pressure really reverts to her right now. She has been in the national headlines. This investigation is uh, being, has been watched and today is being watched by the news media all over the country. And so, you know, what she does next, what she's allowed to do next, if this thing all fizzles out, it does not accrue to, to her reputation, it strikes me, perhaps. I get, I get the impression, that's a great point, but I get the impression that she's going to follow the evidence where it leads her. I don't get the impression that, although I, I like the picture that you paint of her, she, I, I like the reference to her being somewhat aggressive. I like the, uh, 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 I like the point that you made about how, uh, 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 how immersed she is in this uh, uh, 
particular case, I don't get to read. I don't read her as being someone who will make a political decision based upon what that uh, evidence may show. I do think I do think uh, following the uh, story nationally, I do think that there is some uh, vulnerability here for the former president. Uh, and I think that if there's going to be criminal charges brought to, uh, brought, it, it may happen in the state of Georgia uh, before anyone else. And I, and I don't have any evidence for this bill, but I suspect the other prosecutions are watching Georgia to be uh, possibly the first step, the first shoe to drop. And if, if indeed uh, Willis files charges, you will see other shoes to uh, uh, drop in terms of the, those prosecutions. No one really wants to go first here in uh, charging a former president, right? Um, but no, I don't I don't get the impression that she uh, will will wither uh, uh, in, in the side of where this case uh, leads her. Of course, we have to wait and see. Um, but uh, that's my read of, 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 of um, Willis. Karen? So I would add that, you know, when I witness what she is doing as the DA, she seems very deliberative and very methodical going through this process. You mentioned aggressive, and I think a lot of that is very much she's not shying away because this could be, you know, indicting and charging a former president. She's really seeking justice. And I think the national spotlight is it's because our former president picked up a phone and called our secretary of state to interfere. And that seems so egregious, right? Like that just seems like, how could that be possible? And she's wanting to bring light into this and really understand what's going on. You know, perhaps she's not going to make a political play of this, but there are politics at play because Fonnie Willis is an elected official. And so she will have to seek re-election at some point as DA, and she has to be mindful of what she's doing. And I think that goes back to my very first point. She wants to be deliberative and make sure she has the case in place when it goes forward. It's important to remember the politics of the special grand jury itself. The DA requested this special grand jury. She's been investigating this stuff on her own for almost two years now, but she requested this special grand jury because there were dozens of witnesses who didn't want to testify without a subpoena. And depending on how she reacts to the recommendations of this special grand jury, it gives her political cover. And that's really valuable because she's a Democrat, as Karen said, up for re-election next year. Donald Trump is on the ballot next year as well. She's a Democrat looking at a bunch of Republicans. That looks really partisan on its face. So that special grand jury gives her some layers of political protection if she agrees with them. If she does not say they recommend indicting people and she decides she doesn't want to, or the other way around, they say it didn't rise to the level of a crime. And she says, no, no, I'm going to go seek indictments. She has a lot of explaining to do publicly. People like me are going to be on her saying, hey, why did you break with this panel of Fulton County residents? But it's very valuable if she agrees with him, them to say, hey, I'm not doing this as a Democrat going after Republicans. I'm listening to the will of Fulton County residents. So, all right, um, uh, Tamara, it, it does strike me that... Um, I understand what Kurt said about her uh, uh, not following just the politics of this. I mean, clearly she's uh, a, a DA with interest in the criminality that may have been involved here. Nevertheless, it does strike me that to a certain extent, it might be in her interest after how aggressively she's pursued this to want to work to see at least some of this report, however small it might be, released relatively quickly. Does that make sense, Tamar? 
I think so too. She's been looking at this for so long. Mm -hmm. Fulton County obviously is a very blue county and there's plenty of folks who I'm sure would not mind seeing Donald Trump uh, be subject to indictment. And I'm sure she's getting pressure from folks to, to show at least the fruits of some labor on this. So I think there is a universe where she comes into the courtroom today and says, hey, I'm okay with making some of this report public just to, to show that we are making progress, uh, whatever progress may mean. Um, so, and, and it's important to note, she's on the ballot next year. And so as much as I, you know, I'm sure she is following the law and, and kind of having that guide her, I don't think those political dynamics can be ignored. Also, if she wants to indict people, she has to be mindful of the fact that there are primaries coming up early next year and that you don't want to be seen as interfering with that. So that does lend itself to acting quickly if she does want to indict folks. Yeah. And I would say that, um, she does have a reputation for being bold in terms of who she indicts and what she and, and what charges she brings um, with Rico in particular. Right. And so, um, you know, everyone recalls the uh, Atlanta uh, teachers uh, Rico case, but there's also the ongoing case as we speak right now, the, the, the gang indictments that she's bringing using Rico um, and uh, and racketeering charges have been placed on the table uh, here, um, given that if you, to the extent that there's a pattern of conspiracy between, say, the fake electors and others, um, you know, it, it may actually be that that's where more of the there there is than with respect to the phone call that um, that President Trump made, um, but with with statements made by the fake electors, and if, to the extent there was a pattern of criminal activity, um, Rico. So I, she seems slow and deliberate in terms of kind of how she does things and gets her ducks in a row. The boldness seems to be with who she chooses to indict and and just and what uh, what statutes she uses, So she, because she has a lot of discretion there. I will say, though, that I think Tamara's right, that if this drags on too late, <laughs> then we'll be back in a political season. I mean, I, my, I, I hope I'm not the only person whose heart dropped a little bit when she said, that they're going to be on the ballot next year. It's like, we all yeah. have a perpetual yeah. cycle. Well, that's the last thing I want to address uh, on this subject before we have to take a break. Uh, Karen, I believe I read in uh, one of Tamara's filings that it is conceivable. What, what we will see next is that she's going to have to decide whether to impanel a, a regular grand jury and ask them to bring charges based on what the special grand jury reports out. And I believe in, in one of the pieces that I saw from Tamar, it's possible that that process could take us into perhaps spring before any real indictments are issued against Donald Trump, against anybody else who's on the 2024 ballot, whatever. And that already raises questions about politics. You don't have to wait till 2024 elections are underway in that year. We're going to have a number of people who are going to announce for president in the coming weeks. And, and, and if they're going to bring charges against Trump, and it's not until spring, there are going to be all sorts of accusations by him and his allies of, of, of nothing but politics involved in this. They already are saying that. 
Right. And I think it reinforces the fact that we are constantly in political election mode. We never get a yeah. break or rest. And for those who are actually thinking about it, they're thinking about where they're talking to their donors and getting their commit, you know, their committees assembled to get ready to go. And it will have an effect. I think going back to the point, though, for the press quickly, it's, you know, very incumbent because they have to explain this so thoroughly to the public, the difference between this mm. great special grand jury. And now she'll have to call another grand jury to actually do the yeah. indictment and to the to the lay citizen it's like what does all that mean truly and why does <laughs> it take so long yeah i think that's right kurt a quick comment from you well i uh, karen read my mind i was thinking is there ever a period where we don't have uh, a political ca uh, campaign uh, lifting off and running but i i have a feeling though i have a feeling that this may have a direct impact on that long-standing policy in the Justice Department about um, not wanting to interfere in political uh, elections. It, it becomes to a point now where it's unavoidable because we're always in election mode. The, the presidential election statement uh, um, um, uh, disclosures happen much earlier now. Um, states are ramping up their primaries to, to begin much earlier. And I don't see a way that that policy can maintain itself um, to, the extent, to the extent that the rule of the law is gonna be uh, um, applied. All two right, Tamar, since this has been you, yeah, go ahead, please. Two quick points to make. You know, the first is that this could drag on for a long time, or it could happen super quickly. Regular grand juries meet twice a week in Fulton County. In theory, Fonnie Willis could be ready to turn around today or by the end of the week if she wanted and bring in, you know, indictments before regular grand juries. So she could be ready, you know, she could be on the blocks ready to go. Um, and we just don't know it yet. Uh, one other thing, um, kind of going off what Kurt says about how we're in constant elections. This doesn't necessarily hurt Donald Trump. Uh, he loves to say that he's under attack and that the establishment is going after him. So I don't think it hurts that he has a Democratic DA in a, in a liberal city like Atlanta going after him in terms of fundraising and rhetoric for the campaign trail. Yeah, in fact, he has been fundraising off of this very thing, this special grand jury. So, all right, um, this is, hey, all of you out there who thought when the midterm elections were over, politics wouldn't still be exciting, what were you thinking? <laughs> we're going to be following this uh, throughout the week ahead and uh, and have more, I'm sure, uh, tomorrow when we hear what happens in McBurney's court. Let's get a quick break out of the way and come back with a lot more on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Clark Atlanta University's Professor Kurt Young, Emory University's Professor uh, um, <coughs> Fred Smith, excuse me, and Dean Karen Owen, University of West Georgia, joined me along with Tamar Hallerman. Um, I, let's talk about some legislative news, uh, everybody. The AJC commissioned a poll from the University of Georgia to uh, look at a number of, a variety of issues 
uh, that they're going to release over the next couple of days. The one that's in the paper today is where Georgia voters stand on key issues in the legislature this session. And I'd like to look at several of them uh, and spend a little time talking about each of them. Tomorrow, let's start with uh, the question about whether Georgia voters believe there should be an end to runoff elections, which is something that a number of legislators have now started discussing in some depth. Speaker John Byrne says he's interested in the conversation, doesn't know yet whether he supports an end to runoffs or not, but there's strong support, according to the poll. 58% of the respondents said, yes, let's end runoffs. The problem with that, tomorrow is it, we don't know what you, it doesn't ask what you would replace a runoff system with. Just a plurality victory? Would there be an instant runoff of some sort? So let's talk about that. Start with that one, tomorrow. <clears throat> Yeah, 58% of respondents said they are down to get rid of runoffs. 39% said they want to keep it. And to be honest, I'm shocked it's not higher, the percentage of voters, especially after this long runoff season, who want to get rid of it. I I just got so tired of hearing those ads as everyone else I know is on the same page. Um, What I've learned covering politics for the last decade, though, is that Uh, lawmakers, people in power are very wary of change. And especially if they've been able to gain power out of a current system, it's really hard for them to agree to do anything that might lead them to lose power. Um, So it's something I'm curious about, but I just, um, because we we aren't seeing lawmakers yet start to coalesce around a plan, it makes me wonder whether we'll we'll get there by the end of this session. But uh, 58% is something I'm surprised it's not higher. Only three states uh, in the in the country that still have runoffs. And Mississippi um, just actually was it Mississippi or Louisiana? It might have been Louisiana. Uh, no, Louisiana and Georgia have them. I think Mississippi is just adding a runoff. Um, so tell us, Kurt, the pros and cons of runoff elections, and and then Karen and Fred, I'd love to get your take on that. Well, you know the. Uh, the, the typical approach, and for example, in our in our training of young political scientists, we want them to understand the, the uh, frailty and the importance of national elections, right? Well, elections, period. And so uh, if the runoff is a mechanism to ensure uh, the most accurate result of an election that reflects the will of the people, then this is a positive positive mechanism in the in the American political uh, system uh, at the federal uh, level at state levels and what have you. Um, so it has an important role. Now, the extent to which it becomes unpopular is its extent to which it, it, it is perceived to be manipulated by political forces that are non-democratic. Um, now, of course, those those claims can be made and they have to be supported. Um, but uh, it, it, your, your view, your feeling on the runoff in many ways is a reflection of what happens to your candidate, right? If your candidate wins, there's an assumption that it it worked. Uh, it helped to mobilize the mass, the, uh, the base to come out once again to support that candidate. Uh, it gives one of the defeated candidates an opportunity to endorse uh, one of the uh, runoff candidates in a way that allow them to continue to be relevant. Uh, in a process, it gives yet another voting opportunity for those who um, um, feel fully engaged in the in the electoral process. And so uh, it, it also can be perceived to be something that, again, is abused, uh, uh, especially when the results of the runoff cuts against the perception of the direction of the electorate. 
right? Uh, this feeling, for example, that the country is moving in one direction, but the runoff produces something uh, totally opposite. Uh, so it is in those kind of situations where there is a split uh, uh, around the extent to which this is a positive phenomenon or a negative phenomenon. Karen? So specifically here in Georgia, I was thinking that if you have lived in this state and you can recall the 1980s and the runoff mm. elections and those Senate races, or if you came into the 90s, you would remember that we just didn't really have a lot of these statewide runoffs, right? Because our parties were pretty much, our, our demographics, our population was picking really one party. And so we weren't seeing the situation. However, now we're facing, if you're just recent to Georgia, you're probably moving from a state that didn't have runoffs. And so you're going, what are we doing in this electoral system? And because of the change in the state, we're seeing that we're much more closely divided. I mean, nationally is that, but we are closely divided here. And so we are seeing where candidates can't pull the majority. They can't get the electorate all the support they need to go over that margin. So I think we're seeing, you know, Tamar mentioned the 58% was surprising. She thought after this, it would be higher. I think part of it is just voters are fatigued, period. So when you ask them about the system, they don't know what would be an alternative. So why not just stick with what we got because we can endure it or something like that. I think if the follow-up question would be, what do you prefer, rank choice or an in, you know that instant runoff or a plurality, then you've in some ways you're going to have to explain to the voters what those are to even get them to tell you what they want because they're not aware of what the system is. I think too for our lawmakers here in Georgia, they're looking at what happens in that ranked choice voting system in other states and how that delays an actual knowledge of who wins an election because you have to wait to tally all that out. And that can be concerning. If you're in a state that is divided as close as Georgia is and having to wait two or three more months to know um, who your winners or your elected officials are, that can be very dis you know, disheartening, disconcerting. It can help, uh, it can actually hurt the trust we have in our system. And so all of those things I think are playing into how our lawmakers are looking at this and then too, what the voters are wanting. Fred? Yeah, right. So um, you can imagine a system where just the person with the a plurality wins, so the most votes, right? So maybe not a majority, but the most votes. The problem with that uh, is, if, imagine if you had a lot of candidates and the top vote getter got, I don't know, 35, 30% of the vote, um, it may not be the person most folks want, right? Uh, if given a starker choice. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, you can imagine a system where maybe you draw the threshold at something higher, like um, as long as the person gets over 45% and they get the most votes. You can imagine something like that. Georgia's experimented with that before. Um, that still might not get you, though, the most accurate result if you're trying to figure out what, what most voters um, would prefer. Um, and so that's why uh, systems like ranked choice voting, where at the same time, I mean, one way of thinking about it is an instant runoff. You vote for the candidates, you rank the candidates. Uh, and so there is no second election because you people have already expressed what their relative preferences are. Um, and, you know, that system can be a little complex, but when you're talking about three candidates rather than, than 12 or 15, it's not that complex. The, the, the interesting secret is Georgia already has instant runoffs. So folks who are abroad, who are from Georgia and, and cast their, their federal ballots um, use, uh, through Georgia, 
they already rank. So I have friends who live, uh, who are from Georgia and who live, say, in Europe. And when they voted, they actually ranked the three Senate candidates already. So they didn't even, they didn't have to bother a second time. So we know how to do it. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just about whether or not there is political will. And I think the question that every politician asks first when one of these things comes up is, how will it affect me? <laughs> right. And, uh, and yeah. so they kind of have to be persuaded. But the answer is, we don't know. Right. We just know that this will best reflect the will of the people. Let's let's just add one final note and move on to a couple other issues in the poll. Tamar, uh, it's really a question as to whether if, if John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock had not been elected in runoff elections, uh, uh, and then Raphael Warnock re-elected essentially in a runoff election, I wonder if the Republican majority in the state legislature would be as eager to eliminate runoffs. Uh, in other words, how much of this is motivated by their political, partisan political thinking? I mean, it always is. Call me a cynical political right. <laughs> reporter. But who's, who's in power? Who's in power and how do they hold on to power? We have evidence in Georgia uh, going back the last 20, 30 years. Lawmakers have tinkered with runoffs and you've seen it bite them in the butt in subsequent years and they change stuff back. So we remember in 1992 with, with Weich Fowler and, and Paul Coverdale, where um, you know, Fowler ended up winning in the general election, but losing in the runoff. You saw that in 2008 with Saxby Chambliss and Democrat Jim Martin, um, where <laughs> Chambliss was required to go into a long and costly uh, runoff where he ended up really running away with the thing. But so folks think they're doing things to gain a political edge, but then the state changes. And some, so, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes these changes that they make to the system don't end up working in their favor. And I mean, you mentioned John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock looking back to 2020, let's say had it been majority vote, um, you know, no runoff, David Perdue would still be in the Senate. John Ossoff would not have been there, but then Raphael Warnock would have gone into the Senate. Kelly Leffler yeah. wouldn't have made it into runoff. So it really would have been a mixed bag. I mean, traditionally in runoffs, the people who vote tend to be whiter and older and more conservative than the general voting pool. So that, in theory, lends itself to Republican victories. But as we've seen in this era of nationalized elections, uh, there are more Democrats in Georgia. They are more um, energized than ever before. And so now you're starting to see the, the political incentives change a little bit. All right, let's do this. There are a couple other uh, polling uh, numbers that I want to look at, but why don't we get the final break of the show out of the way and we'll come back and do that on Political Rewind. <laughs> uh, Natalie Mendenhall and Chase McGee, since we're not going to get to all of the questions and the data on the poll uh, from the AJC. Can we put up a link on our social media so that people can see all of the numbers that are interesting? Um, Karen, here's one that really struck me as fascinating. Uh, asked about abortion. Um, we, we've always made the uh, statement in polling of people in this state that a majority of Georgians support access to abortion uh, by a majority in most cases. Um, on this poll, 49% did say they want abortion to be easier to, to obtain, easier than the six-week heartbeat law that's now in effect. 21% they want it to be harder to obtain. 24% are okay with the way things are now, which means they support the six-week ban. I, I'm a little surprised that it's that close, 49-45. And I wonder if people who said they support the way things are now were thinking 
specifically about the fact it's a six weeks ban. That is an interesting point. So those who were asked that question, if it's not very clear that they top of the mind <clears throat> thought process was about that specific six week or just the idea that you still had access to an abortion could have been that part of it. Um, you're right. We have talked, especially over the last year when we were looking in the lead up to the Dobbs decision and others about how a majority of the state did support. But that question was always they supported Roe v. Wade. And so now you're having to ask that question a little bit differently because you're no longer asking, mm. did you support Roe v. Wade? But you're asking, are you supporting limits to the abortion or where it currently stands? Or do you want greater access or, or more protections for women to be able to go have an abortion at whatever phase? And so I think that's where we're going to see nuances in these types of polls um, and how respondents ask. And again, it is too who you ask, right? That, that certain groups that you are, that 800, 900 people that you're polling at a time versus the snapshot that was a, uh, a few months back or even a year ago. I'm glad you mentioned that. I personally have not seen the crosstabs yet on exactly that point of who was uh, responding uh, to that question in terms of categories of uh, people. Fred, so far, the speaker, the new speaker has said, at this point, he has no desire to take on abortion again. The governor doesn't really want to do anything. But that doesn't mean a more conservative legislature might not push the issue hard at, its, at their leaders. That seems right. I mean, I think most of the time in the last three decades or more, um, there, both when Democrats had power and when Republicans had power, this wasn't an issue that... Uh, that they wanted to touch very often. Um, they wanted to focus more on things like education, um, for example, uh, and giving uh, raises to, that, that seems to be a perpetually popular uh, thing, both the Democratic, uh, when Democrats are in power and when Republicans are in power. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think all of this changes, though, if the six-week law is overturned, um, mm -hmm. right? So right now, there's an ongoing case uh, as to whether or not the six-week law is even constitutional and under the state constitution. Uh, and if it's overturned, then I think the politics on this shift, uh, and it will be harder for, um, for folks to duck it uh, at the Gold Dome. Okay, because I have limited time left today, I'd like to move on and ask uh, Tamara and you, Kurt, a, about a different uh, question in the poll. One of the most important issues, Tamara, that uh, Brian Kemp ran on was giving more tax breaks to Georgians, returning money to, quote, hardworking Georgians. What's interesting is, and, and of course, Stacey Abrams was on the other side of that saying, Yes, we've got enormous surpluses, but let's put that money not into $500, $250 tax rebates. Let's use it to uh, for health care. Let's use it for other crucial issues. And this poll suggests that Georgians, even though they voted didn't vote for Stacey Abrams, 48% said they want the state to use the budget surplus to increase spending on things like education and health care rather than returning the money to citizens. I thought that was interesting, Tamar. 
Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is that we don't see nuance in these polls. We don't know what percentage that folks would rather get, you know, spend on on healthcare versus education versus any other priority the state might spend money on. Maybe they want the state to spend a little bit of money on that stuff, but more money to go toward tax rebates or other things. So it's it's an interesting top line number to see, especially as you said, because Brian Kemp cruised to re-election so easily. But we don't get much nuance here. And I'm sure if they interviewed 800 Georgians, there are 800 different answers about what they think is the right mix of spending. And at, at, the, at the end of the day, and I guess it's a theme throughout our conversation this morning, the state is split. And when we say that the state is split between uh, um, um, red state perspectives and blue state perspectives, well, split between conservative and more liberal thoughts, at the liberal side, of that coin, there will be a, a an appetite for funding of social programs where the population feels the, the, there to be a serious need. Um, clearly, in uh, if we're going to continue to reference Stacey Abrams, the constituency that she would represent, and you look at the parts of the state that represented her base, wasn't just the city of Atlanta, right? it was certain parts of rural Georgia. Uh, there are serious needs in these areas, right? Education, funding for social services, uh, funding for other types of uh, uh, necessary uh, necessities in, in given societies and amongst, um, I'm sorry, given families in the society and in uh, other areas of the society. Uh, so um, it, it, that 48 and some odd percent is consistent with the state of Georgia and where the state, state is right now. And I think that I, I, I like uh, um, 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 others who have mentioned in the show, I'm looking forward to the cross tabs so we can get a better idea of what exactly is being articulated here. This is, just seems to be the beginning of a conversation. Okay, so um, just a couple minutes left, but tomorrow there's one other um, uh, uh, piece of information from the poll that I leads us into what we're going to be talking about on this show tomorrow and Thursday. What was the top issue on the minds of Georgians who were polled? 23% said it's the economy, not surprising. 19% uh, said it's crime. And the reason I say that uh, a particular question leads us into tomorrow and Thursday is tomorrow Governor Kemp gives his state of the state address. He is expected to put a heavy emphasis on fighting crime, certainly in response most recently to the increased violence around the Atlanta uh, Police and Fire Training Center, but also gang activity. So um, I'm sure the governor's office is glad to hear that as many as 19 percent of Georgians think crime is uh, something that really needs to be addressed, and he'll do it in his speech tomorrow. Absolutely. And I think the events regarding the Atlanta Police Training Center give the governor an opportunity to go on offense here because these are uh, mostly activists aligned on the left. And so it's an easy way for him to show, you know, this is crazy. You know, we we have a plan and and they don't have to worry about being on defense in, in a way that maybe in previous protests um, they would have to be. Um, Fred. It, 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 and we spent a, a lot of time yesterday on the show talking about the events of the last week uh, around the training center. Um, and, and it does feel as if crime has the potential to be a bipartisan issue at the legislature this session. Sure. Right. And so I echo what Michael Thurman said yesterday, um, condemning the, the violence um, and uh, including the because we're still learning exactly what happened to the state trooper uh, in the woods, um, but um, and also what we're still learning what happened to um, the young man who was shot uh, in the woods as well. Um, so there's a lot of raw feelings around this. Um, 
In terms, though, of kind of how people are feeling, um, I think that seeing images of it, windows being broken and uh, firecrackers going off and so forth, um, you know, it, it does kind of create a bipartisan sense that um, we want to keep things under control because I think we have seen what's happened in other cities um, where things kind of get way out of hand, um, like in Portland. Uh, so Atlanta doesn't want to be the next Portland. <laughs> and I think there's bipart that's, that's a bipartisan perspective. I, I, Portland keeps coming up in my thinking, and I'm sure in a lot of people's, Fred, because things really spiraled out of control there for a very long time. And that's why we're going to be following that story closely. I, sorry that we're completely out of time for today's show. I definitely want another hour with this panel. I know you're all too busy uh, to be on for another hour panel, but I wish you could. Karen Owen, it was so great to have you back. Kurt Young, as always, Fred Smith, Tamar Hallerman. I'm so excited that you get to be down to the Fulton County Courthouse today uh, watching your story continue to unfold. We're out of time today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. We'll talk about what happened in McBurney's court. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>